This is the Word of God, amen? I warned you last week that James will confront hypocrisy in your life. And for those of you who have a habit of praying for preachers while they preach, you need to pray for me because it's hard to preach this sermon. I'm preaching to an audience of one this morning in a lot of ways. And uh, there's witnesses here that would tell you of my hypocrisy. But I do stand on what we just sang. I hope you felt the weight of everything we sang when our brother just read that text. Our set has led us wonderfully to help us to think about suffering, to think about how God can work something out of the mess of our lives under the sun. He can, and he does. And it's according to his good pleasure, it's for his glory, and it's always to lift up Jesus. Cornelia Ornalda Johanna Ten Boom. You can imagine why her nickname was Corey. Corey Ten Boom died at the age of 91 in 1983. In 1944, she lived for 10 months in something so close to hell on earth that it is unimaginable to me and you. Corey Ten Boom was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp for women called Ravensbrück in Germany. In that camp, she almost starved to death, was ridden with fleas, was beaten severely, constantly ridiculed, developed potentially deadly sicknesses constantly, and endured the nightmare of watching her own beloved sister be sick, tortured, beaten, and finally die in the camp. Corey was sent there because of her efforts as a Christian with her family as well to house and help those with mental illnesses, mental disabilities. The Nazis had been killing these individuals with mental disabilities for years prior because of their eugenics policies. She was released on what was said to be a clerical error, a very true grace of God. And all the women uh, in her group, uh, when she was released from Uh, were killed in gas chambers soon after her release. Yet, if you pick up a copy of her best-selling biography, The Hiding Place, you do not encounter weeping and bitterness. You don't encounter shame and difficulty. You don't encounter complaining and negativity in Corey. Instead, the book confronts you as the reader with one powerful notion, joy. Steadfast, unwavering joy in suffering. Joy. You read it as you read The Hiding Place, and you mutter under your breath in admiration. And you ask the question, how? How can someone be sustained through such suffering? Now listen, What I just told you is one account from Christian suffering in history. There are many like this that will shame all of us by comparison to our own struggles to remain steady, faithful, and true under our current trials. But hear me. What good is it this morning for those of you prone to condemnation to hear this story and quickly compare your suffering as being so little and dismissed? So if you're going there right now, please stop. Will you put the brakes on your errant mind? Glorious suffering in the lives of past faithful Christians or the admonition from a past faithful Christian pastor named James this morning for you to consider it joy in suffering as we're going to talk about being steadfast through trial does not mean play the comparison game. It doesn't mean point to something worse and think you're not that bad or point to something that's not as bad and think that yours is worse. No, no, no. What we want to gain this morning is access to Jesus again. We want to believe by faith and stand in the faith that we have received, looking to Jesus and remaining steadfast in suffering. All the pain and the suffering in this world has been given an answer in Christ, who from the cross cried out, it is finished. Do you believe that this morning? 
What is finished? Is suffering finished? No. Is sinning finished? That is, you'll continue to sin? No. Is sorrow finished? No. For God's chosen people, what is finished in the record of Christ's crucifixion that we've sang about is the record of sinful death, the ledger of your sinful life, past, present, and future, has been canceled through the crucifixion of Christ. The, Paul writes to the Colossians uh, and boldly, grotesquely says, all that sin was placed in the palm of Jesus and a stake was driven through it. It's been crucified with Christ. The power of sin in your life, that is finished if you are in Christ. James provides guidance to get there this morning. Maybe for some of you to get there for a first time. Maybe for others of you to get there again. Get there again. If what James teaches can be understood, internalized, believed and practiced, it can get you through Ravensbrook. I want that. If that be God's will for your life. Today's outline then is simple. Well, look at this. Christian suffering, and I'll first look at Christian suffering makes a person whole and dependent. It makes them whole and dependent. Whereas, second point, worldly suffering makes a person divided and independent. It's kind of one sentence this morning. Christian suffering makes a person whole and dependent, whereas worldly suffering makes a person divided divided and independent. The, the illustration James gives at the end will close us. So I haven't counted it as a point, but it'll be our conclusion. Let's talk about Christians, okay? Christian suffering makes a person whole and dependent. Let's deal with that. Let's first talk about how does Christian suffering, suffering as one who follows Christ, how does it make a person whole? Verse 2, it shows every one of us studying today. That this message is for Christ followers only. Okay, notice it says brothers, and the word is deeply religious. This word you see there is actually encompassing both male and female because it's familial. It is a family conversation that you're being invited into as the reader. It's intentionally cutting out non-family members. This message is for brothers and sisters who, like James, are a slave to God. They are servants of God and the Lord, Christ Jesus, verse 1-1. And now it's an invitation for family to come and learn at the table. That is not rude. It's necessary. Let me illustrate. Taking the advice that follows concerning hardships and difficulties in this present life that we live. If you take those today and try to put them on, not having found yourself having put on Christ. And what I mean by that is having not been born again not repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have not trusted Christ as your Savior. To take these things and put them on is like you going and getting to July of this year and the hottest day and working in your yard as hard as you can till you have worked up a lather of sweat and dirt and grime and you have just soaked your sh shirt and you're filthy and you were to go and you were to get in the shower and you get clean and then you get out of the shower clean as you can be and then to take those same nasty soiled clothes and put them back on. That's what it would be like today. It'd be like taking perfume and spraying it on a rotting, about to bloat corpse. If you are not in Christ and you have not repented and believed the gospel, trusted Christ alone for salvation, trusted that his atoning work when he died on the cross was on your behalf, and that by faith you look to him, not dead only, but raised to life. Raised to life, beating death. If you don't look to Jesus as the one who has conquered sin and death on your behalf, has ascended into heaven and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, and you're awaiting his return. If you have not trusted the gospel, you will be like the person trying to put on dirty clothes. You'll be like trying to spray perfume on a dead quartz. So at the start, know this this morning. Hearer, if you have never done this, do so today. 
do so today. Because beyond this, the teaching of this sermon will do you no good. I say that. It will do you good in a temporary sense. You see, the temporary is the gospel benefits without gospel change is possible. You can benefit this side of judgment from the gospel. It is your only general benefit as you have any benefits because it is appointed on a man to die and then comes judgment. And what many people on that day will say to God is, I knew you, Lord. I did these things. Will you accept me? And God says in Matthew 7 that some will not. Right? They will have said they did it, and God will say, depart from me, worker of lawlessness. And all the good, all the things they tried to do in this life was the only time that they experience goodness. For after that comes judgment, where they will only experience wrath and judgment forever. Be warned, if you are benefiting from the, what comes in a temporary fashion, you must look to Jesus. You must look to Jesus. But what about the eternal? That's what James is after today. James writes to a changed people. These are Jewish Christians scattered because of terrible suffering. They're scattered and they're looking to be reunited again. And what did he tell them, this faith family? And what did he say? Look at one. Consider it all joy. Consider all of it joy when you suffer. This is our goal, James says. Our aspiration in obedience today is to have joy and inwardly choose rejoicing through difficult times. What kind of difficulty? The text says various kinds. That language is intentional. What does James have in view? You may tell you what he has in view. You ready for this? Everything. Everything. He has every angle of suffering in view here. That's suffering because of your own sin. That's in view here. Maybe you have royally messed up. You dare not approach this table today because you only think about this week and you feel the weight of sin. Are you suffering? James is including that. Some things you've done in your own sinful choices and inadequacy you feel that is in view here. But it's not ultimately in view. He also mainly has in view being sinned against. When you are suffering as a Christian, often this is because people have sinned against you. They've wronged you. They've hurt you. And in its fullest context here, some of these people have witnessed murder. Their friends, their family have been stoned before their eyes. James has both in view. Things in and out of your control. In one sentence, all of humanity's plight has been plopped down in front of you as a Christian, simply categorized as various things, and there's a pathway through it. Shocking, right? Most letters in the New Testament start with theological understanding of who God is, right? They start with a salutation of, hey, I'm so glad that I met you when I did in Ephesus, or I'm so happy, Thessalonians, that you're walking in this way. James? I'm a, slave of, I'm a slave of God. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? Okay. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials. Straight to the deep end. Why? James tells these suffering saints and the dispersion to count it all joy because they are in the middle of crisis. They realize that their lives are temporary and they need answers. And it's Christian joy that James is after. It's not worldly pleasure. One commentator says, Christian joy is a man's pleasure in his and his brothers. So in his and in his brothers, progress toward Christian salvation. It's not undiluted pleasure. James does not care if you have happiness. James cares, will you progress toward the inward goal, the, 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 the goal, the final line, the finish line? Will you do that well? I like how Derek, uh, Derek Tidball says, he says, an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God. That's what joy is here. How can you have it? How do you have such ability to count it all joy? Look at verse three and four. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I, I read this week that the meaning of life is not a clue unveiled to James. It's a truth common among Christians. That's awesome. You understand what I mean by that? The meaning of life is not some clue unveiled to us by some teacher. Some of us live that way, right? I mean, if we were discipled in any church culture, often we're waiting for the next big breakthrough moment where the sermon hit or the the song mattered. And James is like, it's nothing novel. It's nothing novel. It's a truth common among Christians, at least how he sees it. He starts and says, you know this. He appeals, right, not for the adoption of some superficial happiness. That's not his appeal. He doesn't appeal to an Instagram, Insta-happy, I'm fine in Jesus kind of moment. He doesn't go there. In the face of life's adversities, he wants you to have a candid awareness of truth already known. That's brilliant. Because in suffering, we often seek creative matters to fix ourselves and our situation. And we would reject the common. But the commonality among us is that there is one, Christ, there is his gospel, and he's a hope. Will you stay there? Will you preach that? Will you remember? Joy, 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 joy. Now, as once Jewish, now Christian people, James calls them to a higher road. He calls them to this idea of following after Christ. And you hear the following language in these verses, right? It's producing, it's moving forward, a steadfastness that has a full effect. There's endurance, right? There's endurance here. When you are moving toward perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, I hope the humility in you rises up and you realize that there is only one person who's ever been perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As the scripture says, one day you shall be like him if you have trusted in him. His name is Jesus Christ. I've been preaching about him. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What's our point right now? Christian suffering can make you whole. Colossians says, in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of God, of deity, of God, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who's the head of all, of all rule and authority. So James teaches us that when suffering comes, it is a test from God that you will know you are passing as long as you keep reaching into the future hope of being glorified with Christ. That's a key that unlocks. In other words, Hold fast, beloved. I told you to pray for me. The reason why is because I want to get to this song. (laughs) I don't want to preach this sermon. I want to sing that I can call to my Lord from sorrows, deep sorrows, and he hears me. This is what James is saying. You will get through suffering as you reach into the whole fullness of deity. How can you reach into heaven and grab God for your own? It starts by grabbing some palms and touching some sides and seeing Jesus again. So reach for him, James says. You want perfect and complete, lacking in nothing faith through suffering? See Jesus. That's what's implicit here. Does God test you in this? Think. Does God test me? Do you have an answer? Does God test Christians? Yes. Does he allow suffering to accomplish his test? Answer again, yes. James assumes his readers have already dealt with that, so we must deal with it too. Immediately, without any theological introduction, this short letter tells the church and each individual member that is in the body of Christ that they will be complete one day. But on the way, God, God will allow tragedy to be one of the main teachers. You ready to learn? The invitation to come and follow Christ, famously, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is an invitation to come and die. Do we forget this? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever would not pick up his cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. But this is what James says. 
You want a crown? You got to go through thorns. You got to see the transformation. You got to sign up. Christian suffering makes you whole. It also, because of that truth of Christ, makes you dependent. Look at verse 5. Any of you lack wisdom in this? <laughs> yes. Right? I love that. I love how James is like, if any of you lacks wisdom. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. It's just funny to me. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like, I lack wisdom, God. Okay, let him ask God who gives generously, benevolently to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Following the cause and effect reality of enduring suffering to obtain hope of a future glory, now comes the actions of the complete man. How does someone who rests in a future hope that, that of glory, that they will be like him, how do they now, in the moment of suffering, live? They are dependent, not independent, as this verse shows. Illustration. I recently watched a young child who shall remain nameless uh, struggle for a solid few minutes on a very simple task that deals with clothing to get ready for the day. Wanted to do it on their own? Trying hard, struggling. A, a very serious diligence in about a minute gave way to frustration, which gave way to despair. And finally, a frantic looking around for mom or dad. And there I was. I had finished cooking eggs. Breakfast was done. And I was there as their father. They came to me. And in a matter of seconds, I did what they needed done. And I wiped away some tears and I said, hey, this ain't the end of the world. We're just putting our shirt on, right? It's okay. And I set them on course to continue the task of getting ready for their day. And they did it. Why didn't the child just ask me, their father, for help? Independence. Independence. James very kindly says, if. Right? If you, need, if you lack wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he's being very kind. You lack wisdom. You and I are my child <laughs> that I just told you in that illustration. And we go through suffering like that. And it's not until we've worked in our diligence and we can't get it done. And then we've turned to frustration, imagining that twisted sinful emotion is going to get us where we need to go. And it doesn't. And then we finally begin to despair and we cannot even begin to get our head up, it seems, to even think about how this trial could go away. Till finally, in a panic, a stirred panic, we remember, oh, I have a dad, <laughs> a father. He's like a father to me. I can ask him for wisdom and he will give it to me. And he doesn't just give it begrudgingly, which we think in suffering. We think, okay, I'm finally ready, God. Give me, the, give, me the, give me the whips. <laughs> and, and if you would look to Jesus, if we would look to Jesus, is he not gentle and lowly? Does he not say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest? Not a rod. I'm not going to beat you into obedience. I give you rest. I give you all of me. I give you my inheritance. I give you the nations. I give, I give you a good thing. You ask for bread, I'll give it. I'll give it to you daily. I'll restore you. He's a good father. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. <laughs> Do you not know how to get through a situation like that? Ask God. Ask him. Man, I feel like 20,000 times I'm told in my own heart, because I know it, in, in, in prayer, because I, I pray it, in, in reading it and preparing for it, and it doesn't matter, right? You can hear it 500 times, and sometimes it's just finally going to take one time that you actually believe it, and then you do, and God reminds you. I was always here. Look to me. But we refuse him. We refuse him even after we have him. We forget that God purchased our life, past, current, and future self in Christ. And that means that God made you his child. He made you his own. He adopted you. No one gets to talk to God like we do, like in James 1 here. They try. But outside of Christ, the question, the asking for wisdom is like asking for poison. It really is. Go read Ecclesiastes. People build their whole life actually on the wisdom of God, on his good gifts, without him, and will find it a trap door. 
right? They'll be let out and they'll realize, oh, I've, got, I've gained nothing. But Christians are different. We get to commune and talk to God. <laughs> the Father is omnibenevolent. You need to learn things about God's character as we go through James. And one of them here is he's omnibenevolent. You know what that means? No one is better at being good and then giving aid from his goodness. No one. That's what that means. No one but God. Bad English actually helps your brain to learn this. God is the goodest. <laughs> He's the goodest. <laughs> Kids are like, that is not a word. Listen, it is today. <laughs> God's the best. He's the goodest. You, you, can't, you can't exhaust him. You got to go to him. I told a member of our church this week, one of my favorite times at RBC is hearing the members pray during our intentional prayer times. It's one of my favorite times to hear you brothers and sisters pray. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes I forget God's goodness. I fight my own hypocrisy. I'm Blake will testify as an elder as well. And we do so in ways you wouldn't believe. If we read the document that we've got going, holding each other accountable to the sins we confess. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just telling honest brother. But what we do often is we complicate and we layer um, our struggles and our trials. We, we layer them in this theological onion nightmare. You ever done this? Right? Where suffering is pretty simple. The answer is look to Christ, have faith, ask your father for wisdom and he'll give it. But instead, you're 10 steps back from that and you maybe cloak it in church language. Ever been there? And that theological nightmare of an onion, you start cutting into that thing. And your eyes begin to water, right? It's miserable. But I'll tell you, for me, why, what is so helpful is in those times where I'm tempted to be dependent on Wes or dependent on what I think should happen in the church or dependent on my own flesh and it's rendering me very sick and struggling as one who should keep the faith and lead. I show up in, in corporate prayers. I get to hear the simplicity of some of your prayers. And it's awesome. It's like a child asking a father in faith that he would end evil, that he would sustain us, that he would make us want to love the things he loves, care about our church covenant. You know the things we pray for in that time. And it's been ministering to me, especially in recent months. It snaps me back into reality. It, it pulls me out of the pit of my own evaluation of things. And it sets me upon... Things like the Word of God. Simple prayers of faith muttered by the other saints. Is this how God gives wisdom? Ask yourself that. This is just one example of yes, this is how. Okay? You, you would seek God's goodness in your quiet time in the morning. You ever had this happen? And nothing. <laughs> that's, that's not your Bible's fault and it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You would see nothing. And then God later on in the afternoon would use like some song. And if you're theologically astute, he may even choose to use some song that's all kinds of messed up. <laughs> and it gets you. You know what that is? That's an omnibenevolent father. That's God working. Now that's for the church. That's for God's people. But we structure, we discipline our emotions and ourselves into this liturgy we have here. And James is functioning in that world. Jewish Christians very much leaning into their Jewishness. So when he says, you know, you know what I'm saying about God, about trusting him as a good father, even when he tests you. For them, biblical theology, for us, but for them, it just explodes off the pages of the Old Testament. Genesis, God says to Abram, I will test him. <laughs> Exodus, God says about the people of Israel, this I have done to them so that they may be tested. I may test their love. Ezekiel, Isaiah, all the prophets. It is the common means of grace. It is God's huge omnibenevolence filtered through salvation's lens to you that will get you dependent. And that's what will get you through suffering. Do not be bored by the common in Christianity. Be dependent on it. New and flashy is dangerous. James wants you to understand that. But old, rugged, crosses? No. <laughs> People that believe in those, that's, that's who make it. They make it through concentration camp. That's godly suffering. Worldly suffering does the opposite. And James needs us to see this. 
It makes you a divided and independent person. We won't break these two up, just be one point. By contrast, this second point lets us see how worldly suffering makes us a divided and independent people. These next verses, 6 through 8, you will note they seek to contrast. Okay, they start with the word but for a reason there in verse 6. It's all in one point, one main idea that we consider generally today, and then we're going to be in detail about it next week. But verses 6 through 8, let's read them again. But, so contrasted, but let him... This is the faithful sufferer. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. If you go through trials and sufferings in this life in a worldly manner, you will be filled with doubt. Doubt can be uh, illustrated with numerous ways, but let's just rhyme this morning, okay? My son's been telling me what words rhyme, uh, and I, I love it. But well, listen, doubt can be illustrated by using one of its rhyming words, gout. You know what gout is? Gout is a very painful disease, and doubt is like gout. Gout is a common form of inflammation, arthritic. It's, it's like arthritis, and it's very painful. It usually affects one joint at a time in the body. There are times when symptoms of gout are, are worse, known as flares. And there's times when there are no symptoms, and that's known as remission. When gout strikes, it gets in between the places of your body that you depend on to move through life. It strikes in the toes and the fingers, the elbows and the knees things that you rely on to get your job done and get places. And gout strikes there. You can move, sure, but your movement is slow. It's painful, and your mind gets absorbed in those things, the pain. You think about the pain. Doubt's a lot like that. Doubt is like gout. Only it is your soul that cannot get where it should go. Doubt mixes into the joints of your faith. It encourages you to world, worldly vices instead of other worldly truths. Doubt is like gout because it seeps into the cracks and crevices of unseen moments and you don't see it until you need, you need faith. And then you have doubt. That's my illustration, but why am I doing that? <laughs> James gives illustrations, doesn't he? He talks about it, doesn't he? We have some images that describe it in the text. Let's describe them and then apply what James is preaching. James says, having doubt in suffering, the worldly sufferer, they're like a message in a bottle and the waters are not calm. You see that? He's talking about being tossed and driven by every wind here. You're tossed Driven, tossed by the wind, you're like a wave of the sea. Imagine throwing a message in a bottle into a sea and then watching it blow back and forth. You study the wave and what do you realize? It's never moving. It's just it's, it's going a little bit forward to the shore and then it's back out again. A little bit forward to the shore and it's back out again. And it can't seem to get to its destination. That's what James is getting at here. Doubt is like that. The shore is in sight, but the bottle keeps getting Close, but then sucked back by the riptide. I think the message in a bottle, that, that, that could be extended, right? As an analogy. The person in view here that's suffering with doubt, if they be a slave of Christ, they're sealed up tight. <laughs> if they believe the gospel and they're a Christian, the message is not getting wet. It's not actually being affected. But what they perceive it as getting where they need to go if you don't trust in God, you don't turn to the scriptures, you don't supplant yourself, as we're going to see later in the text, by believing that God's word is like an implanted anchor of the soul that you will be saved by. You get your eyes off of that. You begin to be like this suffering doubter. You become a divided person. You're like floating back and forth. Suffering's not happening. You're a little bit closer to the shore. Suffering happens, a little bit of difficulty a horrible diagnosis, a death, a tragedy. 
You can't seem to stop sinning. Oh, you're blown back out, sucked out by the riptide of doubt. The man who doubts is like that, James says. He gives another picture, doesn't he? We check into the insane asylum for the second image of doubt. Two men in one man. You see it? Look at the end of the verse there. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Greek is graphic here. What a crazy journey it was in commentary this week to read about this. Two men in one. Two minds sharing one space. When we doubt God, we are like a schizophrenic, doubting God's goodness and having no faith. So that man perceives it in the moment. Spurgeon described his sanctification and walk with Christ in morning and evening. He wrote uh, a morning and an evening devotional you can have. And if you pick up one that's, I think, in the April section, he talks about prayer. And he, and he points to this truth and he says, when I'm failing and falling short in prayer, my devotion to God, I don't track backwards to just three days ago holiness. When I embrace the full conviction of my prayerlessness, God doesn't allow me to stay a few days back. Oh, Spurgeon, you slipped a few days into that lack of holiness. Be the man that's three days more holy. No, he said he would go all the way back to hell. That is, all the way back to the lost man. This is what it felt like. What is that? That's conviction. James is saying, there's, there's the man of faith and there's the man of doubt. There's the old man, other apostles will teach, right? Paul. There's the old man and there's the new man. There's the dead and there's the alive. There's this tension in you. There's the flesh and there's the spirit. And when you are walking in the flesh and you are trusting in doubt, you know what's clearest? It ain't the gospel. Right? That's schizophrenic. He loves lies. And he reverts to his old vomit, doesn't he? This is the picture here. It's a miserable place to be. Failure to trust God in suffering or in anything, will produce faith in half-truths. It'll produce faith in the Christian with half-truths. Think about it. Look at verse 7. James, after he uses images to illustrate what you see, look right in the middle of them in verse 7, in between the two illustrations. He says, The man who doubts and is blown away like that message in a bottle, and the man who doubts, who is like a schizophrenic Christian, okay? They they do not know who they are half the time. Right in the middle of that, that person, they must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. This implies that a person struggling with doubt actually does suppose. They assume that they will have or they do have from the Lord, but they don't. Listen, that's the misery of this. It's a half-truth. If you go through sufferings and you're doubting God's goodness, you have half the truth. You know God's good. That's the truth, but it doesn't fully belong to you. It only halfway belongs to you. And so you live in the half-truth. And so what do you end up with? Oh, God is good, but not to me. And it's right there that you begin to open yourself up as a half-man. Satan loves half-men. He loves people with one foot in the camp and one foot out. That's what he is. Right? Perfect faith. James will tell us later, he and demons believe perfectly what it means to be in Christ. And at one time, he was created for this purpose, to glorify God. And yet he has chosen rebellion and knows his judgment. And what is his favorite enticing tool? James starts his letter to say, this is his favorite tool. Give him a half truth. Let him know that God is good. And let them be steeped in it. Make sure they write excellent theological works in it. Make sure they know the characteristics of God. Let them be ruthless in their theology. But when it comes to their practice, in the private hour, in the dark night, you make sure that they know this. God's good, but not for you. The doubting man lives in that tension. It's miserable. No one makes it through that trial if that's where they stay. Living like two men is a half-life full of half-lies. You can possess the keys of promise and never unlock the dungeon of doubt you find yourself in. Isn't that torture? 
being locked in Doubt's castle, wearing the very necklace with a key on it that unlocks every single door out of the dungeon. I'm still in this one. John Bunyan wrote about this one in The Pilgrim's Progress. It's not until Christian and Hopeful in the Doubt's castle, all of a sudden, by the grace of God, this is how it has to be. It's amazing when you read it. It's just like, how? How in the, that low of a trial, when you were that upset, you were doubting God that much, how in the world did you just all of a sudden realize, I've got the key of promise right here. And it's almost like before Christian can even get the, the, the key in the locks, they're falling off. Doors are swinging open. He's out of Castle Doubt, and he's headed back on the narrow way. It's like that. Doubt will shred the mind, believer. It will splinter the mind, and it will have you having conversations concerning God. And this is what they'll sound like. I'm going to slow down here and tell you this. If you're struggling with doubt, here's what your conversations concerning God are. They're about God. They're around God. You're directing them toward God. Sometimes they're ignoring God. Dealing with the parts of God you want to deal with, but not the others. But here's what they're not. They're never conversations with God. They're not face to face. You're not talking as you would have with a friend. When you're doubting God, you talk among and about and to and for and from and toward, but never with. James shows up and he says, oh, would you ask for wisdom in this? Don't be like, don't, don't be tossed to and fro, beloved, my, my brothers, my sisters. Verse 9 summarizes everything in our sermon. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. The rich are the worldly sufferers that we've just described. In this text, the rich are those who continue in double-mindedness, who ultimately doubt their faith all the way point to what? Their humiliation by sin. You want riches in this world? You want the worldly wisdom? You want to suffer like a worldly person? Beware, because on that day he will say, do you believe? And so, let the rich in his humiliation, but let the lowly, the lowly brother boast in what? Look what it says, his exaltation. The lowly brothers are the godly sufferers from point one of this sermon. Be made whole by Christ, and steadily endure being dependent on God, and you can have hope in what? Exaltation. That's a future, ultimately, what you reach in heaven, but it can spill over into now. Worldly suffering makes a person divided and independent, but contrast that with godly suffering. It makes a person whole in Christ and dependent on God. We're going to study all this more next week. But in closing, let's consider the illustration we're left with by James. Look at this conclusion in verses 10 and 11. It's another illustration. Our boy's a preacher. <laughs> he says, and the rich in his humiliation. That's, that's the end there of, of what we read in 9.10. Because the rich, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In conclusion here, James says with this idea, Suffering will be like this image described here when it comes. And Christian, hear me today, it will come. The sun rises and scorching heat withers anything that has grown in shallow soil. Have you heard that before? <laughs> Christian, have you heard that before? Do you think James heard that before he pinned this? If you're thinking of Jesus, you, you're right. You see, in Matthew 13, Jesus speaking to his disciples and to a gathered crowd, says, a sower went out to sow. In other words, a sower is somebody who sows seeds. He went out to sow. And seeds, some of them, Jesus says, fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil... But when the sun rose, they were scorched. 
And since they had no root, they withered away. Same chapter, later in the chapter, he explains to his disciples what this means. And this is what Jesus says. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the seed, the word of the kingdom, God's kingdom come, the word made flesh, the word, the gospel. When they hear the gospel of the kingdom, when they hear the message, when they hear, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, Jesus says concerning this seed, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Jesus says. But he has no root in himself. In himself. Jesus says, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This morning, James is just parroting to you what his Lord Jesus illustrated and explained. How interesting that Jesus says you can have joy, but you can have a rootless joy. You see, Jesus is more after what we said James is not. Jesus is after, oh, they seem to have a joy, a happiness, a contentment, a willingness to believe and follow me, but they have no root in themselves. James has taken that and said, with salvation's lens on to the church, you, if you have true joy in Christ, you know what you have? You got joy that's rooted in you. Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. We teach our kids to sing such things because those who have joy in their heart, they don't fall away. They don't get burned up in suffering. Their fruit doesn't perish in that moment. It shines. People look at it because all their fruit's burned up, and they say, how are they drawing water? Where, where is this well from? What is this strange fruit in the midst of my death? That's what God wants in this world. He wants us as his light. He puts his joy deep in us that cannot be taken or thwarted because of trial. And he says, I'm going to, it's like a, an oak. It's a taproot. You ever, you ever gone and seen a big oak tree and beside it is like a little oak tree that's sprouting. And you're like, I like my big oak tree and I don't want this little oak tree here. And you just think, I'm going to pull it up. And you will not pull that sucker up. You know why? Because the oak sends a taproot down. It goes deep into the soil. It grabs a hole. I don't know about you, but I feel like a taproot. And I wish I was an oak sometimes. Oaks don't get blown all over the place when, you know, trials come. They stand there, you know, glorious. They got, they're a home for birds to come and squirrels to live in. I mean, they give. They give life. And I look at that, I look at the oak tree and I'm like, I want to be that. Because my little, my little sprout over here, man, it's blowing back and forth. I'm almost bending all the way over sometimes under these sufferings. That may be you today, Christian. Have hope. Read Psalm 1. Know that it says, that man who stands by the river of God's word, he will be like the mighty oak. Will be. Until then, let the taproot of your joy run deep, God says. For when it is deep, let the trials come, baby. Right? I need them, is what the Christian begins to say. I look forward to them, for in them, this is Psalm 119, it's good, the psalmist says, that I was afflicted, because in them I learned your statutes. You taught me your ways, God. Can you pray this? On the night of this crucifixion, everyone fell away from Jesus. Everyone withered and wilted like a flower. They perished like like, like ugly people. They weren't beauties. They all abandoned the Son of God. But what did Jesus do? Let's work backwards in our text. Look at verse 11. Jesus did not fall away from his pursuit. Everyone else fell. He didn't, verse 11. Verse 9 and 10. Jesus remained the lowly brother to be exalted while being treated like the rich man who deserves humiliation. He was humiliated for us. Keep working backwards with me. Verse 8, Jesus was of one mind and one mission even when his own father forsook him. God the Father forsook him and he stayed a one-minded man. Our Lord did not waver. 
when he took on the full wrath of God the Father, he remained one mind. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who speaks like that when they're racked with the pains of crucifixion? Keep working backwards. Jesus is the greatest gift the Father could have given, and he did. Ask for wisdom, it'll be given to you. God has given the greatest in him. Look at verse 4. Jesus is perfect and complete and lacks nothing. And he gives from that. Look at verse 3. Jesus stood the trials and the testings of God. The scriptures tell us he was tempted in every way and sinless. And now look at verse 2 in conclusion. Jesus counted it joy. It was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and suffered in our place. Condemned he stood so we could go free. Where do you look in trial and suffering? You look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. If you're doubting today, Christian, if you're failing to suffer well today, look to Jesus. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. When my hope is shaken, torn, ruined from the fall, God, hear my desperation. Oh, for so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. Even so, the thorn remains still. My heart will praise you. Is it well with your soul? Tribulation, persecution will come, beloved. Know this. But also know that if you are in Christ, trusting Christ as the anchor of your soul, it will have you rooted. You will not be moved. Let's pray and respond. Lord, we need you. Make us and give us the faith of Corey Timboon. Give us the faith of Peter. Give us the faith of James. Give us the faith of our forebearers. Give us faith, God. Starve our doubt, feed our faith. Lord, we know that the taproot of our joy is in you. You fulfilled every line and verse of James's admonition to us today. We look nowhere else. Lord, we want to get our eyes on you and cry out, believing you can forgive and restore 10,000-fold. If no one else can do it, you can do it. And so we ask for you to do it again. Do it new for the unbeliever today here that does not have this peace. Do it again for those who do. As we approach this table of grace, we know that it is not in and of itself giving us anything. Because you and yourself are omnibenevolent. You have given us everything we could need and more in Christ Jesus. We remember him today. Help us to sing loud, to sing to one another these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Thank you for the reminder of community. We would trap our response in isolation if it were left to us. But you have said in your word that it is good that we are together. So help us to suffer together well. If there be suffering on the horizon, God, let us share it in the many text messages and coffee cups and times together. Lord, may we call on one another in the late night. May we pray together as a people, God. And may you get all the glory from our suffering. We know that it is because of your great suffering, Jesus, that we too shall make it. This too shall pass. Remind us of that day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.